This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hi, it's Evan Shinners. You may call me WTF Bach. You may call me Evan. I masquerade as both. The goal of this podcast is to get you to hear Bach the way I hear Bach. The whole impetus for creating such a program is to guide your ears, to set your mind on certain aspects of an otherwise very complicated music. And I will help you appreciate this ornate, this elaborate art by breaking it down, dissecting it, and putting it back together. If you want to calm yourself, put on Bach. If you want to get in a relaxed state of mind, put on Bach. If you're in heavy traffic, I recommend Bach. But if you want to have lasting happiness, study Bach. If you want to marvel at the accomplishments of humanity, if you want to see the potential of man, study Bach. You're listening to the WTF Bach Podcast, presented by Evan Now, I garner that mostly musicians listen to this podcast, now in 73 countries. Oh, yes. But I like to use a language that's familiar to everyone. So if you're ever not sure about a term I'm throwing around in the podcast, I suggest starting from episode one. But one term I overlooked and never introduced was key. Someone wrote me, you speak a lot about D minor, F major, E minor, or the key of C, but what are these letters and what is a key? So I thought this might be interesting even for musicians to ask the same question. What are the keys in music? Well, actually, we have a lot of keys in music. We have keys to read. We have clefs in music, treble clef, bass clef, etc. This is the French word clef, clay. It means key. And yes, that's like a key on a map. It allows us to read the music. Then we have keys on a piano or a saxophone, whatever that's the term for the part of the instrument. But what is the key of C? What is the key of D minor? And do these keys unlock anything? Well, right off the bat, we look into the etymology of the thing, and we find that the word key of D minor is exclusively English. I could not find another language that's related to our English homonym. In German, they say tonart, and in French, they say tonalité. In Spanish and Portuguese, they say tono, tom. These words mean tone or tonality. But I sort of like our English term, key, because what a tonality is, on even a physical level, is its own potential universe where resonance happens. It's a physical space where sound waves are based on a fundamental note. It's like a key to opening these many worlds of sound. So there's a nice poeticism to it. A key which unlocks the world, which is the tonality. So fine. Then we have to ask, what is a tonality? What is E minor? What is G major? Let's use a universe metaphor. When something has the tonality of E minor, when something is in the key of E minor, it means that the note E is like a star. All the other notes in the musical scale rotate around the note E and are pulled, using what I would describe as a musical gravity, toward it, toward E. Okay, so B and D and G sharp and any note you can name are attracted back to E. That's why pieces start and end in the same key, because there's this gravity that pulls everything back together. And just as there are multiple stars, etc., any note can become its own star and attract all the other notes toward it. Name a note. It has a solar system. F sharp, F flat, sure, these can all be keys. These can all be tonalities. So let's go to the solar system of the key of D minor, because this is the key in which Bach writes the art of fugue. Why did he choose D minor? Well, folks, I do not know the answer to this question. Maybe I will learn an answer eventually as my understanding of Bach expands. 
keys in general in music this early rely often on the build of an instrument or upon the way things were tuned. Again, this is another discussion for an entire episode, but it is worth mentioning. Though I carried out only the most cursory of surveys of his 1,200-odd works, he wrote only in C-sharp major, C-sharp minor, E-flat minor, D-sharp minor, F-sharp major, G-sharp minor, B-flat minor, and B major for the well-tempered clavier, that is, the collection of works which represent the first instance in history of someone writing in all 24 keys. Now, of course, this isn't black and white. Bach has moments in all of his music where he goes into these keys. And yes, what does it mean to even write in the key? The Mass in B minor opens in B minor, but it could be renamed the Mass in D major because the structure is really more in D major. But his favorite go-to keys, so to speak, for the minor mode are G minor and A minor. He writes with less frequency in D minor, E minor, and C minor, and with even less frequency in B minor and still less in F minor and F sharp minor. But what can we learn from looking at all the keys in which Bach wrote? Well, like I say, my cursory study shows me that Bach only wrote six pieces in A-flat major. So when, in the middle of the St. Matthew Passion, the crowd says, for only two measures, surely this was the Son of God in the key of A-flat major? Well, there you go. Something is up there. That is clearly a special choice for Bach. D minor? I can't really speak to what D minor meant for Bach other than perhaps he felt that this tonality lent itself to fuguing. We're in the solar system of D minor now. He makes D the sun. All notes will seek stability toward that note. Every piece in the art of fugue will start in the key of D and end in the key of D. But what happens in the middle? Well, the tonality shifts to other keys, and these keys are usually the notes in which themselves are very stable within the tonality of D. So to continue this solar system metaphor, let's say a note like A in relationship to D is like Jupiter in relationship to the sun. It's huge, so big, in fact, that it has its own gravity. And when Bach writes each of these fugues, the gravity of A is so important within the solar system of D, he spends a little time visiting the key of A in every single fugue. In fact, every cadence, that is every final moment of music we hear, will be a combination of these two keys, A and D. We can hear this. We can hear A major being sucked back into D major here. It's as if we were to zoom in on our own solar system. The first two objects you would see would be the biggest, the Sun and Jupiter. D and A. So when you zoom in on the Art of Fugue, as it were, you first see D and A. And it just so happens, though this is a coincidence, or is it coincidence, Herr Bach, that the first two notes of the Art of Fugue subject are D followed by A. Now what about an object with less stability, with little to no stability? What happens to it? There's that often told story about, you know, name a composer, Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, whomever. As he was comfortably lying in bed, someone downstairs played a little bit of music and just before finishing the piece, broke off. The key of the piece was never reached. That gravity between one note and the sun was never resolved. Let's say that piece was, oh, shave and a haircut. The person downstairs played, shave and a haircut to Beethoven or whomever couldn't stand this unstable note here, this note, not going toward the note of the key. And so he ran downstairs and played. That's because when you begin playing music, 
Whatever tonality in which you begin implies a sort of gravity toward it, so that it would be a very odd thing indeed for a piece to begin in one key and finish in another. In fact, this was looked upon as a very radical technique when composers started doing this, and eventually, music abandoned keys altogether and started writing atonal music, that is, music without tonality, music without keys, not music without notes, just music without a gravity, but this is very high art stuff. Only intellectual circles of musicians were experimenting with that. And yes, I often feel that the atonal experiment is the idea that Yes, we as humans all feel the gravity of keys, all feel this physical resonance. But what if we could suspend that belief for a moment? That's kind of the hypothesis of atonal music. Because whenever we're on a train, in an airport, hearing a text message, they provide the keys. Think about it. Ba -ba -bum. These are not just a random collection of notes. These are the most stable notes in the solar system of whatever key this implies. Classical music is one of the few musics that modulates, and to modulate is to shift that perspective from one stable area to another. Most music does not modulate. In fact, most music is always playing within one key. That's how much we like that musical gravity, that in almost every single pop or rock song you can name, it stays within one key. In fact, you know this sensation of a song going up and up and up at the end, like the Beyonce song, Love on Top, where she goes higher and higher and higher at the end, or Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror, when he says, change, make a change, and then all of a sudden you modulate, you go higher. This isn't a modulation to another key, as much as it is a sudden shift to a key one note higher than the previous one. That's why we feel like, whoa, that was crazy. Now we're in this new key. Wow, what happened to that other gravity? It's like dropping the floor out from under our feet, and we're weightless. You won't feel such a shift like that in music that modulates, because music that modulates, modulates in a smooth fashion. In fact, that's one of the points of modulating in a way, for you not to feel the change from one key to another, but to simply access these other worlds in a very smooth and beautiful fashion. And masters like Bach can modulate so seamlessly, it amazes us that he can take us from world to world without feeling any sort of sudden shift in gravity. I hope that clarifies what a key is, what a tonality is, and yes, the art of fugue is in the key of D minor. Now let's go on to the unfinished business, this tenth contrapuntus. Let's hear something now. hear another thing now.
Now, if you're like me, you may find this bass line here to be one of the greatest bass lines ever written, but we heard it twice. This is odd. Those two pieces I played seem to be completely different pieces, right? One starts with this recognizable artifugue subject in inversion. The other starts with this rather intimidating sounding idea. So what is going on here? What I'm doing is flipping between two fugues, numbers 10 and 14, as printed in the original print. Now, the first time I did this, the first time I noticed this, I thought Bach, in his infinite power for manipulating fugues, had given us two versions of the same fugue, one abbreviated in form, so he could get the same music across with less music in it, like giving us the Reader's Digest version of a fugue. I wasn't altogether wrong. This is two versions of the same fugue, but the version with this wild introduction is the revised version of the fugue, to which he has attached a 23-bar introduction. This, for me, is a super interesting moment in our study of Bach, because we get to see his mind working. We get to see Bach in revision. In April 2020, I did a bonus episode about the early version of the art of fugue and the revisions which Bach himself made before sending it to print. But here we get to see some more revision and some more confusion about the original print. Initially, this fugue came as fugue number six, and it started with the artifugue theme in inversion. Then, Bach looked at the overall structure of the artifugue, and he thought, here we are in a chapter on compound fugues, double fugues and triple fugues, and my other double fugue just before this fugue started with a subject that isn't the artifugue subject. Maybe Bach thought, so to keep that symmetry, I'm going to affix this introduction, which also starts with a subject which is not the art of fugue subject. And I also cannot help but think that, as this is the fugue in counterpoint at the 10th, he liked the symmetry of having this fugue now at the 10th position in the art of fugue, as the 10th fugue. This fugue, now with its introduction, is slightly more contrapuntally complicated than fugue number 9, this is fugue number 10, and then it's slightly less insane than fugue 11, which closes the chapter. So we have this gradual increased complexity of the compound fugue chapter. Fugue 8, which is a triple fugue in three voices, fugue 9, which is a double fugue, then fugue 10, which we're discussing, and then fugue 11, the triple fugue in four voices. This wasn't really possible in the early version. Let's answer that question. What does a la decima, what does in counterpoint at the tenth mean? In our last episode, we discussed what duodecima meant, counterpoint at the twelfth. We heard one subject as this, and the other subject as this. That's a very distinct double fugue. And first they came in unison from the same note, and then right at the climax they came in, that's right, counterpoint at the twelfth. Okay, so now we're going to figure out what makes this counterpoint at the tenth. Now my piano, it's a new piano, it has not yet been tuned, so bear with me. By the next episode, everything will be hunky-dory. Okay, this fugue begins with this, I called it an intimidating sounding subject. I guess it depends on the way you play it, but... Now that's two of the four voices which have come in. Now I'll get back to this 23 bar introduction because it's very interesting just on its own, but that is the first subject, suffice to say. And the Art of Fugue subject, of course, is our second subject, this time in inversion.
And what's great, and maybe what's special about that bass line here, is that right after that bass line, we have the first combination of the two subjects. We have this. tend to think of this combination of the two subjects as already being at the tenth rather than the unison. For this reason, that this interval here is a tenth. And you'll see what I mean when I get to the next combination, which happens a few bars later in a different number of voices. It happens between the bass and the alto here. this, in other words, an octave. So this to me is at the octave or at the unison, whereas the previous one was at the third. So he goes first showing that it can be made at the tenth or at the third to it can be made at the unison or at the octave. Another combination later on gives us So in other words, the unison or the octave. Now we have what I feel is one of the most incredible climaxes in maybe all music. And it just really, really builds up to this incredible section here. Take a listen. I mean, and what's gonna happen after that? Well, here is the crazy thing. That section now, with the 23-bar introduction that Bach later added, now that climactic section happens to be, yes, you've guessed it, right at the golden section. Here's what happens at this golden section. We've already seen the combination of the two subjects in both forms. We've seen it already at the tenth and already at the octave or the unison. But at this point, because the tenth is a consonant interval as opposed to the twelfth, say, from the previous fugue. You can play things in parallel tenths. And it sounds good, but if you played things in parallel twelfths, you'd have... It does not quite sound good. That's definitely not allowed in Baroque music. So the great benefit of that is that now you can have a subject going at both intervals and singing consonantly. And that's what happens here. Right at the golden section, Bach puts in the two highest voices way up on the keyboard, the artifugue subject singing in sixth, like this. And that is just so unbelievably gorgeous to me. I mean, the first time I heard that, just tears were falling out of my eyes, like dropping out of my eyes. And he combines it, of course, since this is at both intervals already, in one theme, he combines it with the other theme. Now, that's the Artifugue theme. And yes, you've guessed it, he will do the same thing later on with the second subject. He will sing them in the inversion of a sixth, which is a third. And this will be sort of closer to the end of the piece where we will hear this.
So I hope you're beginning to see how this fugue is now slightly more intricate than the previous double fugue, where he was able to show us that, yes, both fugue subjects can be presented at two different intervals and the counterpoint still works, but he wasn't able to do that simultaneously because the twelfth does not lend itself to parallel singing like the tenth does. So that's why we have this beautiful, beautiful climax where he's able to sing at both intervals, showing that the double fugue is, yes, it's a double fugue, but it's also possible at two different intervals. And of course, it happens at the golden section. Now, how did it happen at the golden section? Bach added this 23-bar introduction. By one fraction from the mathematical calculations, by one fraction of a bar, all of a sudden, that climax, those parallel sixths, fall at the golden section. I don't know how Bach figured that out. I don't know how he figured that if he added this seamless and very beautiful introduction, which we are about to discuss, he would create the golden section of the piece at that climax. I don't know what other artist in history could have created such a marvelous revision. Those lesser thirds so plaintive, sixths diminished, sigh on sigh. Told them something, those suspensions, those solutions, must we die? Those commiserating sevenths, life might last, but we can try. To quote Robert Browning, After the golden section, Bach begins to almost introduce a third subject. It sort of comes very fugally, but then sort of disappears just as quickly as it came. This little gesture here. And all four voices just now exploding everywhere. then that gesture disappears and it's not fully fleshed out into a third subject. But it's almost like he's hinting at a third subject because what will follow? Well, the 11th fugue where there are three subjects. Let's look at the 23 bar introduction, but keep that in mind, that almost subject, the theme which begins this fugue. Is answered at a normal pace. When I play the third and fourth voices to enter the fugue, they sound like this. They come in a stretto. So that's unique. But did you also notice that they came in inversion of the first and second voices? Here's the first and second voices. third and fourth voices. In stretto. Now, it is difficult to hear because when you look at this shape, those two ideas right there are already inversions of, of themselves. First, you have a half step up and then a perfect fourth down. And then in this next three notes, you have exactly the opposite, a half step down and then a perfect fourth up. So when it's answered, we follow that order. First up, and then down. And then finally in the third and fourth voices, we have the exact opposite. They go first a half step down, then up the perfect fourth, and then a half step up, then down the perfect fourth. Okay, now why is this important? That little almost third subject that I told you to keep in mind toward the end of the piece? 
also does the same thing. First you have the first and second voices there to enter, going in the same direction. When the third and fourth voices come in, they enter in the opposite direction. So it's sort of like that quasi-third subject there. foreshadowed the introduction that later Bach tacked on. So for me, this is just unbelievable that this fugue existed in a form without that introduction. Or to me, maybe it says Bach knew that he had to put some sort of introduction on it, but what was he going to do and how was he going to do it? And he remembered that little trick there, that quasi-third subject going first down, followed by then up. And that for me is really fascinating. And there are hints of triple counterpoint everywhere in this fugue. Still, right before the golden section, we have this in the tenor voice. And then the soprano. And the alto. And then the bass. So it's, it's like, you know, is this, is this really a third subject or has Bach just become so fugal that there's just fugal molecules spewing out all over the place. Let's finally listen to this while I speak over it, and then I will play a version where I don't speak over it. This is a new theme. We have not yet heard this in the auto fugue. And there's the bass in inversion, and the soprano and stretto here. That's the end of the exposition so far. Right here in the middle, we'll have a sneaky thing. The inner voices, tenor and alto, in strato, in opposite directions. And now, here is the bridge. Right here, this bass line is the bridge to the original beginning of the piece. With that original beginning, we of course have the Art of Fugue theme, all in inversion. Sixths 
and to the combination of everything. into this whimsical thing. There's no subject here for 14 bars. But now, the first subject, the new subject, singing in thirds now, at the same time, up top, high voices. And then this sort of third theme, this whimsical theme, coming and then disappearing very quickly. from major to minor right there. Very tender moment for Bach. And now the original theme in the bass and parallel thirds. Here. Bass and tenor singing the original theme. Well, the Art of Fugue theme is up top. And again that strange theme that was fugued earlier. One final thing, a new theme now, appearing in parallel thirds in the inner voices, here, alto and tenor. And yes, that is me playing on a suitcase piano. And speaking of pianos and speaking of suitcases, I have been doing a lot of traveling, but finally, I am back with a bunch of new stuff, with a new piano that will be tuned with a new place, with some new electronic equipment, but right now I only have one microphone. Pretty soon I hope that everything will be back to normal and I can wheel out these episodes with some regularity again. So thank you for staying with me, thank you for your patience in waiting for this episode to drop, and of course thank you for all your notes, thank you for everyone and every single different country for listening. Thank you for your questions. Thanks for your enthusiasm and of course your donations, which really keep this podcast. I doubt you'll ever have to wait for an episode for this long. Again, I took a self-imposed exile from the piano for several months, which was very interesting. I will write about it and maybe post it somewhere on the internet. But you know, this Bluetooth keyboard that I had really was a good companion. So if any of you music lovers or musicians out there want to take a trip but feel like you can't get away from an instrument, I can really recommend that. I was able to put it in a suitcase and I, though I didn't feel like a pianist, still felt like a musician to some extent. But now I got back my trusty box of wires and will begin practicing like a normal person. So thanks very much. And here is Robert Hill with the 10th Contrapuntus.
listening to the WTF Bach Podcast. We are a brand new podcast and we want to hear from you. Got suggestions? You want a specific piece of Bach analyzed by Evan just for you? You can write to us. Do you want to partner with us? Write us at the WTF Bach Podcast. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at WTF Bach. Help keep this podcast alive. Support us. Find the links in the episode description. What a, what a great, great day. day to be listening to WTF Bach. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.